So what we do in our office prior to e-assist where patients would call the office and ask for an appointment. They would provide our office with their insurance information. Now, prior to seeing that patient, there's a lot of work that needs to be done ahead of that, meaning the patient's insurance profile must be accurate, and then our staff either goes online or contacts the insurance company to check the patient's benefits. And that in and of itself takes a lot of time. So can you imagine being in an office with the phones ringing off the hook, patients coming in, patients checking out, and at the same time trying to gather all this information so that you could schedule a patient that's been on hold. So it's, it, it's, it's chaotic and I don't like chaos. You know, I like things to be controlled and I, I like things to be consistent. And e-assist gave me that consistency. Hello and welcome to the How Dentists Get Paid podcast. This week's episode is a little different. As you may know, this podcast is sponsored by e-assist, an outsourced dental billing provider. Because eAssist has clients all over the nation who have outsourced their insurance billing, I have access to a huge network of general dentists and specialists with a variety of backgrounds. And eAssist periodically awards the title of top doctor to their clients who have managed to excel and succeed in their practice in partnership with eAssist. So I sat down with top doctor winner Dr. Benjamin Kerr, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in Westchester County, New York, to hear about where he comes from, what he's doing, and where he's going. Enjoy the interview! I see from your website bio, you're into yoga. Can you talk about how that has benefited and centered you? My headspace, my, my yoga, uh, my intentions and, and meditation practice, you know, I didn't really believe in it during residency and dental school and surgery. But now that I've been in practice for a while, it, it truly does set my day. And it, I feel like it exercise and, and meditation and yoga in the morning, you win the day. And somebody had told me that a long time ago, and I didn't really understand what he said, but it's true. You know, you, you have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your body and you have to take care of your mental status. And if you could take care of yourself, then the world's, you know, unlimited. So if you would tell me about your early life, where did you grow up? Sure. I grew up in Long Island, and in Long Island, everybody knows each other. <laughs> that's the that's the the common theme. But no, my my parents were from New Jersey and Long Island. They had met in college, and they settled in Long Island. We moved there when I was three. My dad was in restaurant equipment sales. My mom didn't work, and you know it was like a typical suburban upbringing, playing soccer and lacrosse on the weekends. Uh, the high school and the, the school system was great. I participated and excelled in several sports, uh, so notably soccer, track, and lacrosse. And I was constantly busy, so constantly in competition, whether it was with myself at school or in sports 
or in a team environment. So that competition really drove me. I went on to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, go blue. And in Ann Arbor is where I really met a mentor for the first time in my life. And his name was Dr. Jonathan Shipp. And he took me under his wing and mentored me and gave me a work-study position. So not only could I learn, but I could also make some extra money, which was certainly needed in college. And, you know, when you come from Long Island and go to Michigan and it's a big space, having that mentor and having somebody to talk to and relate to is so, so advantageous. So when I was in Michigan, I wanted to be in medical surgery, dental field. I just didn't know in which avenue. So after shadowing certain doctors and seeing what the oral and maxillofacial surgeons did and how they affected people's lives and changed people's lives really impressed upon me. So I knew right then and there in my junior year of college that that's what I wanted to do. So why OMFS? My understanding is the field is unique among surgical specialties and that oral surgeons are kind of much more likely to own their practices and also to work in a private practice environment rather than a hospital. Did that factor at all into your decision? No, it didn't really at the time. And mind you, there are oral maxillofacial surgeons that are full-time in the hospital. And there are those that are full-time in private practice. And everybody says the ideal world is having some academics and 75% private practice. It's very difficult to do that. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in all in. You know, you either are all in or you're all out. And you can't give one setting 25% of your time and another 75%. That's just my belief. And that's how I grew up. And, you know, every, every time you step into that facility, you have to give it 100%. Now, when I was in the hospital in Ann Arbor, I did shadow the maxillofacial surgeons, and they were full-time academics. Um, and I did believe that I needed to be in this subspecialty. It really gripped me, and it really did you know, churn the wheels, and it really got my imagination, and the, the academic you know, energy was there. So I was... I was pretty intense uh, about getting into the programs I did. So what happens after University of Michigan? Do you go straight to dental school or did you take a gap year? Right. So when I graduated Ann Arbor, I, I was still short some requirements to go to dental school. That and I, I didn't think I was mature enough at the time to take on that grad school experience because grad school, dental school, medical school, it's a job. And if you're not in that mindset that you have a full-time job, then take a step back, reassess, and you'll know when the time is right. And I actually took two gap years. And in those gap years, yes, and, and in those gap years, I grew up so much mature. I, I, I matured mentally. I was able to see how people work in Manhattan, taking the train every day. 
I knew I definitely didn't want to do that. You know, I, I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. And luckily, you know, and thankfully, all the hard work I put in paid off. And I was admitted to Stony Brook Dental School, which is on the east end of Long Island. It, it was a state school, so state tuition. And, and that's where I went to dental school. So uh, I guess we have some, some parallels in, in our lives because I also, uh, just a couple years ago, I was working in Manhattan and, you know, I was commuting. I was doing that too, taking the train, getting packed in like a sardine uh, and during rush hour with everybody. And now I am in my gap year um, like you were and I'm applying to dental school. And um, I remember one, uh, one day um, early on in my career at Amazon and um, there was some problem with NJ Transit and a couple of the people, you know, who had families in my office, um, they all lived in Jersey, sometimes as far as central Jersey, which was about, you know, an hour, two hours away. And um, we just got to talking about how long our commutes were. And I remember pretty much all of the people who did have families and, and my boss in particular, um, th they were saying uh, how far they lived and, and how, how long they traveled uh, every single day. And I remember my boss said he took the bus one and a half hours each way uh, from New Jersey. And this was just so they could have, you know, a, a family and a, a, a house and a yard. Um, and, and you can't get that in New York. You can't get that kind of traditional, you know, white picket fence uh, experience. Uh, that's just not going to happen. And I knew that uh, that's kind of what I wanted, you know, with my life. I wanted to settle down and I, I didn't want to be taking the train all the time every day, an hour and a half or the bus, an hour and a half each way. And that's part of the reason why I got out. I think that's great. I really do. I, I think you're going to see more and more of that, just like you're seeing more and more people working from home. My wife works from home now and she works for Pfizer and my wife's a doctor of pharmacy and she's able to put in a full-time job working, you know, telecommuting. I just, I couldn't envision myself, you know, taking the train every day and uh, commuting. I just, I don't even like the word commuting, <laughs> you know, I have a 14 minute drive to my office and it's a pleasure it really is. It's a pleasure. So that that was a big part of it. I'd rather have that extra time to walk my kids to school. So tell me about dental school. Were you open about the fact that you were set on oral surgery or, or did you keep an open mind or what? You know, when I was in dental school, you never want to tell your professors in dental school, well, I don't want to be a general dentist. I want to be a surgeon. I mean, that that's a good way of, of not <laughs> of alienating 95 percent of the people at the school. So, you know, I I kept to myself in that respect, but I did externships and and these externships were over the summer during a, a break period of, let's say, six to eight weeks. And I went down to the University of Miami at Jackson Memorial Hospital. And there was a couple of surgeons there that were world-renowned, notably Dr. Bob Marks, who is – he's essentially the godfather of oral and maxillofacial surgery. And 
I position myself to spend time with him and shadow him and work in the hospital, obviously not getting paid, but just to observe and and to listen to him and to learn. And I did that for two summers in a row. And that really did set me up for success because I knew right then and there what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go and and how I wanted to go about it. And that those externships were priceless. Tell me more, if you can, about what you took from those experiences and those externships. Well, what I took away from it was that our field of expertise, full scope oral maxillofacial surgery can be so rewarding. And it's not just taking out teeth or putting patients to sleep. You know, we work from the clavicles up. So I was involved in maxillofacial injuries and facial fractures. That was, it was an adrenaline rush. It was a adrenaline rush to treat these patients. And obviously, I'm, I won't get into the details. They're a little gory, but you know, I, I was I was okay with getting my hands wet. And that's what I took away from it, that using my hands, you know, it's funny, as we're talking about this, it reminds me, I used to rewrite textbooks and get maybe three or four times before exams. And I would condense and condense and condense, but that was the only way that I could learn by that repetition. So I knew my hands, having my hands have a lot to do with my brain. And I translate that every day now. When you build something and create something, whether it's, you know, a, a house, a painting, a box, whatever it is, it's an accomplishment. So when I can reconstruct a patient from zero to a hundred and change that individual's life by using my hands, it's it's really rewarding. So you're in dental school. You know you absolutely want to be an oral surgeon. So at some point, you begin applying for residencies, right? How was that experience? When, when I started applying for oral maxillofacial surgery programs, it's a very interesting way to do it because it's called a match. And as you're applying to medical schools, you'll you'll see that as well. So essentially, you list your top 10 programs and blindly those programs list their top 10 candidates. So you list these programs that you've interviewed at and they list the candidates. And through this intricate system, you meet somewhere in the middle and hopefully get your top choice. My top programs were Albert Einstein Montefiore Medical Center, Jackson Memorial, and then that was pretty much it. I knew that those two is those two were what where I wanted to be. It was just a matter of do I want to live in Florida or do I want to stay in New York? And obviously chose the latter. And if I'm not mistaken, you ended up attending the program in the Bronx at Albert Einstein medical college? Right. So four years was spent in the Bronx. And my chairman was Dr. Richard Kraut, who was former colonel in the army. 
and he ran a pretty tight ship. And, you know, I was one not to shave too much back in the day. (laughs) So he certainly made me aware of that. And he was a great leader and he was a great program director and chairman. And I learned so much at Einstein and not just about oral surgery. I learned about anesthesia and medicine and plastic surgery and ENT. And it was such a well-rounded education. I, I can't be more thankful for that. I hear a lot about the rigor of an OMFS residency. How was that for you, spending all your time in a hospital, taking call and all that? So we would be on call every third night. And if you spent that evening operating on an emergency, you still had to work in the clinic the next day. So it was rough. It was it was definitely not for the faint of heart, let's just say. I've heard the governing body uh, for medical residencies has put an 80-hour work week cap in place for residents, for medical residents. What do you think of that? Is it necessary for residents to be working you know, 80 to 100 hour weeks in order to learn these procedures properly? Or, or is this a good idea? Is, is that kind of crazy work week unnecessary? I don't think it's reasonable to have somebody work a full night and then be expected to perform surgery the next day. Uh, if, you, if you were to do comparisons of success and predictability, I guarantee you the well-rested individual did much better. So I'm a big proponent of letting people rest and getting sleep and going back to this meditation and mindfulness. You know, you can't, you can't work on no sleep for 36 hours. It's impossible. I mean, look at the pilots, right? They have strict regulations. So after residency, you had to decide where to settle down and start a practice. And you landed on Westchester, New York. How was it living and and building your practice there? Correct. But at the time when I started the practice in 2009, I was living in Manhattan. So (laughs) talk about commuting. I was reverse commuting. Um, We had our two children in the city. We were living in the city. We were going to spend the rest of our lives in Manhattan. And I was reverse commuting about 30, 35 minutes each way. However, as, as you well know, if you want to be part of a community and have a practice in a community, you really need to live close to that community because you want to be involved in the day-to-day. You want to be involved in your kids' sports, in the, the local community programs that they have. And to build your practice, it is so necessary to be immersed in your community. I'm able to spend more time, let's say, after work, possibly meeting some doctors or not rushing back to the city, or we live maybe 15, 20 minutes away from the office. So people that we befriend in town may want to come see me, which invariably wound up happening. So it's certainly necessary to to be within earshot of your practice. And once you set up shop somewhere as a specialist, my understanding is you need to start building a referral network, right? With local general dentists. How did you go about that? Oh, of course. 
Of course. I mean, they're, you know, our referral network is our lifeline. Um, but I wanted to do it organically. And what I mean by that is I just didn't want to knock on every door that had a dentist sign on it. You know, I, I, I really wanted to learn about the community, learn about the, the dentists in the area and just get to know them. I mean, I, I think, or, or her, you know, him or her getting to know your colleagues, I think is 75% of the battle. And, you know, if you get to know somebody just like you and I are talking and we're getting to know each other now, you know, I, I know that we could sit down and have dinner and have conversation, not even talk about dentistry. And that's that's truly how, you know, I built my referral network. Last question. How did you come to be involved with eAssist? So I, I got involved with eAssist in 2017. And at that point in time, I was frustrated with the process in our office and frustrated, meaning I was frustrated that we had so many people working at the office, yet the tasks that needed to be done weren't getting done efficiently. And not only that, but some of the patient care as far as communications with other doctors' offices and just supportive care of patients wasn't up to my expectations. So when I sought out the help of eAssist, I can't tell you how it made me completely relieved now that the billing portion of my practice was completely outside of my office and in the hands of professionals, of individuals that have experience with this have extreme knowledge about the subject and then have the support of a company like eAssist behind them. I used to have two full-time billers and paying them, forget about the compensation, you know, having a detailed report every morning when I get to the office and a, you know, Valerie and our team and I say our team because I truly mean our team. They're part of our team. We're in this together. And I receive a daily report, a weekly report, and a monthly report. And those daily reports, I'm a, I, I see into the inner workings of the business. I see how many claims were filed, what was posted to the accounts, what adjustments were posted. And the, the amount of information that I get now from eAssist versus what I never received is unbelievable. And did eAssist affect the number of employees you had at all? Were you able to get by with fewer people or what? So the number of personnel actually stayed the same. I just allocated specific job responsibilities that were only part of the equation prior to assist. So an individual who is responsible for communications, right, and writing letters and reports to doctor's offices, that was just part of that individual's job. Now it's their full-time job, and they could do it 100%. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Kurt, for taking the time out of your busy schedule full of surgeries, consultations, and probably literally games to sit down with me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you all enjoyed this special episode. And as always, you can write to me at brandon at howdentistgetpaid.com with comments or suggestions. See you next time. I do want to thank eAssist for allowing this podcast to happen, for sponsoring the podcast. Um, if you're looking for outsourced dental billing, eAssist is the number one outsourced dental billing provider. You can increase your income by outsourcing your billing, taking the pain out of getting paid. There are no software changes needed. They don't get paid unless you get paid. They help your staff. They don't replace your staff. And there are no long-term contracts. It's less stress, more peace of mind. You know, I work with them. They help with this podcast. Uh, They're all great people, and I can guarantee you're not going to regret working with them yourself. Go to dentalbilling.com for more info.